Everyone, thanks for joining. Today I am speaking with Dr. Peter Bogosian. Dr. Bogosian is a professor of philosophy at Portland State. He is also an author and he was involved with the Grievance Studies papers. And he's his latest book is what I'm hoping to talk to him about today. It's How to Have Impossible Conversations. And he co-authored that with James Lindsay. Hi, Dr. Bogosian. Thanks for coming on. Great, great. Thanks for having me. You can call me Peter. Right, thank you. So, um, well, I was hoping if, like your book, uh, like the book you just did with uh, James, like How to Have Impossible Conversations, that just seems right. more and more necessary almost every day. Um, it is, yeah, it is. So I was hoping if you could maybe go into how it came about, and then maybe you could talk a bit about some of the techniques you have in it. Sure. The, the book is my life's work, and... Fortunately, I was able to recruit James Lindsay as the co-author on it, but I've started thinking, I've been thinking about conversations and rationality and moral reasoning and how do we, are there such a things as moral facts and how do we communicate better with people? I've been thinking about that for over a quarter century and then I did my dissertation in the prisons. I wrote a book. So many people have written books and articles converting people into a particular faith tradition. I'm walking around my neighborhood for exercise right now, so you hear weird sounds in the background, that's what it is. Um, and no one had ever written a book for how to talk people out of faith. So uh, all of my works, most of my work centers on a dialectic, reason, and rationality. And now a lot of folks are applying the How to Have Impossible Conversations book to speak across political and moral divides, they're applying that to situations in lockdown during quarantine. So how do you have conversations when you're stuck with people in a house for a long period of time with really no end in sight, maybe? So uh, that hopefully that will, will help folks. Yeah, I mean, okay, in this kind of situation, and I think I'm a little bit better suited for this right now just because of my work right. um, what, what may i ask what your work is okay i work in it but i spent 13 years in war zones and uh one disaster area and up until 2000 october of 2018 i was living up in a remote fly-in only community in northern quebec so uh, like what, i what, what, what were you doing in a war zone uh, I answered an ad in a paper to do, communi do communications work for the military, and I ended up in Bosnia, and then about a year and a half later, I ended up in Afghanistan, and then whatever, one thing led to another, and I, like I said, I did that for about 13 years. Wow. Uh, so, like, I'm kind of better situated, like, I think suited yeah. for this, yeah, because I'm used to it, but I know what you mean, because, like... There were times when I was out there for, let's say, three months straight, and you're on the base, you couldn't leave the base, you you live and work with the same people, you eat with them, but right. at the same time, you're in your quarters exactly. by, yeah, yourself, exactly. by yourself staring at a screen, so you're completely exactly. isolated, and like I said, having those conversations, because, you know, NATO base, there was 26 countries, so you're speaking right. with Greeks and Turks. And you're both soldiers, and, you know, things could get a little heated at that point. Right. 
So, so it's. I wish I could go back in time and give you a copy of How to Have Impossible <laughs> Conversations. It might have helped. Did you Did you find yourself in any situations where, during specifically conversational situations, communicative context, in which the conversation got heated? It was actually more. Um, one of the contracts I was on, I was working for a French company, and about 40% of the employees were French and 40% yeah. were British. Uh-huh. I'm Canadian and I grew up in Montreal, so I speak both the languages. Huh. And it just, they even set up the, the the office in a way that like, in one row is all the French employees, on the other row is all the British employees. Huh. And they call the, the aisle in the middle the, the channel. And it was just, <laughs> so I played translator for the two. And it was also more translating humor and idiom because they didn't right, quite right. get each other. So it wasn't like tough conversations, but it was just like the Brits would make a joke and the French wouldn't get it, or the French would make a joke right. and the Brits wouldn't get it. So it was that kind of stuff. See, the thing that makes that conversation easier, it's that that's a conversation that already the context puts it in to use gaming language in easy mode. And the reason is because you all have a shared task. And when you all have a shared task, it's kind of like the difference between a group and a team. When you have a, a task or a goal, have you seen the Heineken commercial, the famous one about they bring together people across different... Yeah, they build different... a bar or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you have a common task like that, the reason that I said it puts the conversation on easy mode is because you're 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 working toward a mutual interest. Whereas often if we just meet somebody or we see someone, we have no idea of their life experience. We're at a bar or party or something like that. Sorry about that. Truck going by. Um, we have no idea of their beliefs or life experiences for the most part. There are, of course, exceptions to that. So you can't build rapport and build upon mutual commonalities like you can in other contexts, like the one that you were in. Actually, I just wrote something um, along those lines, and it was about basing my experience overseas to, you know, like, sorry, we're just getting veering off topic here a bit, but basing my experience, no, no, o- no topic. Uh, basing my experience overseas to what's going on right now, and I said that was one of the things overseas. We had a common goal. And right, exactly. We had that objective, so it was about doing the work and getting that work done. So whatever your job was, it didn't matter. Like you know, I said, you know, I worked IT, but it didn't matter if the right. electricians if the electricians didn't do their work, I couldn't do mine. If plumbers didn't right. do their work, I couldn't do mine. Right. Right. So, and I talked about that, and I said, in this situation, think about the common goal of getting through this with as little damage as possible. You know. Like, right. And so, not only is it that you're more likely to overlook those things. But you see people in your party. I was thinking I say party because I was thinking about, again, of a gaming contest. Like, have you ever played World of Warcraft? Uh, no, but I used to do a lot of, I used to play a lot of D&D. Oh, oh I still do, 5e. Anyway, we'll talk about that later if you want. But the, the, the point is, uh, I, I, since the quarantine, I upped my D&D time from one night a week to two. But the point is, if you're in a, party with or even in a D&D group say and you know you, you have a common goal of you know liberating the, the whatever whatever your common goal is it, it does it really make a difference if the person is a Republican or a Democrat or 
is for abortion. No, you don't, because you have a common goal, right? And so it just, it's a different type of conversation. But what do you do if you don't have that common goal? What do you do if you are forced to go to a dinner with someone or engaging people and these things come up? And a lot of people have written a lot of books but about communication and negotiation. And, but I, I thought that almost all of those books, if not all of them, had different shortcomings and different gaps. Uh, for example, there's very little talk of epistemology, which is how you know what you think you know, and how to instill doubt, and how to have um, interactions in a way that you both learn from something and can use that to make yourself a better thinker. And I found that absence when I read, I mean, I've probably read literally almost everything, if not everything on this topic at this point. So I tried to plug those gaps in the book. Yeah, okay. Um, now, I, so I read this, I got, I got your book a while back. I think it was like right when it first came out. And so I've tried incorporating some of it you know, like I said, in those, you know, with friends a little bit, but more so like, you know, you're in a pub, you run into someone and you're just having a conversation, exactly. right? Um, exactly. So now twice it came out where after I got back from overseas, I was trying to figure out what the hell happened. And then in the last couple of years, I really started reading uh like critical race theory and intersectionality oh and okay. like, I, I really got into the weeds of the stuff. Right. And I even, I went back and I read some of the original papers. Like I read Bell's paper. I read Crenshaw's early paper. And like, I just wanted to see what the hell they're talking about. Um, I'm glad you did that. And uh, so I go to this pub uh, or I used to until, you know, we're all in lockdown now. Um, I used to yeah. go to this pub every Monday and we played cribbage. Now, a couple of times, like once, this one of the guys who played brought his girlfriend, and she was playing with us. And so when her and I were having a game, we started talking, and she's taking uh, cultural studies and like minor in feminist studies right. or gender studies or something. So probably yep yep. And she's about she was about twenty or so, and right. so we started and how, talking. How old? Excuse me for interrupting. How, how just to give me context? How old are you? I'm fifty. Okay. You know, and okay, and I, I did a poli sci uh, bachelor's, and uh, okay. and I was in public administration in my, in my master's. So I mean, I, I read some of the stuff. I read like I don't know, Fanon is not really postmodernism, but I read a lot yeah. of Fanon. I did read some postmodernism and stuff in in school just because I was in arts. Um, right. But uh, this stuff is just, you know, it's different, right? I mean, obviously yeah. you know that. Uh, so I was talking to her about it, and I told her, you know, and she liked the fact that I had at least read it and right. I was not completely ignorant of it. Right. And, you know, maybe I planted a couple of doubts in her mind. Cause I, I brought up the stuff of like the white ways of knowing, cause she was like focusing on the cultural studies and stuff. And right. So I was not and trying to say like, I was not trying to dunk on her, but at the same time I was saying, saying, okay, you look at viewpoints. I'm like, well, here's my viewpoint as someone who's Brown. Right. You know, and trying to put it in, in her in her parlance. Right. I don't know. I, I think it kind of put some doubt in her mind. I don't know. Uh, See, that's that's interesting. So a few things. That's when 
and it's easy, it's easier to do than you think. So, so you had that conversation with her after you read the book, right? Yeah. Yeah. So of course you never know when you're going to have these conversations, but one thing to figure out how effective it was, if your goal was to instill doubt would be to ask her to put her belief on a scale. And so when she puts her belief on a scale, oh, that's interesting. How confident are you in that? And she'll say, like, well, you know, what do you mean? Or, like, and, you, and then you could say, well, you know, so she gives some, I don't know, standpoint epistemology or whatever it is. She gives her, uh, she articulates it. You repeat that belief back to her. She says, yes, that's correct. And that's what you're looking for. You're looking for uh, yeah, right. Uh, that that's right. That's that's the exact phrase you're looking for. And then, well, how confident are you in that? With one being not at all confident, five being maybe, ten being absolutely positive. Where, where would you place that belief on a scale? And that way, that's like a pretest. It's like applying the scientific method to conversations. And then, after you have the conversation, then you just repeat the question and you compare numbers. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I did. Did you see her again? I, no, I I haven't seen her since. Um, it was okay. just like, like I said. Yeah. yeah, I mean, she. There's a group of us that do it every week, and then she was she came along one night. That's the only time she'd been there, and and then after that, yeah, but but a week or so after that, we were all in lockdown, so you know, right. I, I, I couldn't. Uh, but I do know that, like, because I I mentioned I do this little podcast and. And I told her that, you know, I, I said, look, I, I said, like, I've read all this. And I said, I was speaking to these people and I just. Um, Let I me just... guess. Can I finish your sentence for you? Uh, or can I try? Sure. Did she say to you that she doesn't want to come on it and talk about it? No, she actually asked me to give her the links to my podcast and she was going to listen to it. And uh, I'm assuming she did. I don't know, but I sent her the links and well, everything. So. Yeah, she she wanted to listen to what I had to say, and that was it. Well, that's good. That's yeah. kind of astonishing, yeah. which may, which leads me to possibly believe a number of things. Either you did an extremely good job in your conversation with her, because big baked into that worldview is not I want to listen to alternatives, or I want to self-examine or self-reflect on the things I believe, but rather we, we know they 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 have certain first principles, if you will. That racism exists, sexism exists, bigotry exists. All those things are true, of course, just not to the extent they think that they are. Um, and if you can have her on, you can apply the techniques in the book. I think that would be a lovely conversation. Yeah, well, I mean, I could see if I could, like I said, it was uh, one of the people I played with was his girlfriend. I could see if I can reach out. But I wanted to contrast this with another person, you know, with the same, same pub. Um, again, she was older. Uh, she was late thirties, maybe you know, like forty max. Uh -huh. But again, she she was someone who'd gone through, uh, you know, like gone through school, taken this stuff. Uh, I think she said she she did it in gender studies. She defined herself as queer. Um, uh -huh. And again, we disagreed on a lot of things, right. but we never got hostile. Good, you know, excellent. And, we and what do you what do you attribute that to again i was just you know uh okay a couple of times she asked me like you know I, she said okay why why don't you agree with some of this stuff and then she 
and she started going down the list and because she did the gender studies and like I said, she identified as queer. She started going to, and I, I, I haven't read a lot of queer theory. I told her that straight up. Uh, yeah. and I said, okay, but the little I do have read, this is what I disagree with. And then I brought up the thing about, uh, Pete Buttigieg when they were saying, oh, well, he's not really gay because he doesn't embrace his right. queerness. Right. <laughs> now, right. no, but we had a conversation about that for about half an hour and she was trying to explain to me what she was talking about. And, uh, and I was, and it basically came down to because he had so much other privilege, whatever he he lost of because he was gay, it got counteracted with all his other privilege. So, you know, the 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 balance sheet weighs on the other side for him, and that's basically what it was. But I, we never got. You know, granted, we're in a public place; it's inside, and you know, right, it's, right. But we left on friendly terms. We oh great. You know, Good. we we weren't. And- we weren't arguing and or you, anything. And two things. One, first, do you feel or do you think that that's attributable to the fact that you use some of the techniques in the book to achieve that? Or is it attributable to something else? Uh, I think with the younger uh, younger girl, I think it might also be the generational thing. I, I think in like the Gen Zs, with the Gen Zs who are getting into college, I think they're more cynical about this stuff but I, I could be wrong about that it's just a hunch i don't have any real data but i think that might have been it with her with this one i don't know we were we were talking it was not neither of us were hostile neither of us but like i said we disagreed maybe it was just you know like i said it was a, it's a friendly pub most of the people in that place are friendly it's not a you know hostile environment anyways so maybe it was that I don't, I, I don't know, but yes, I mean, I did th- p- think of things from the book. Um, again, it was also for myself more. I was like, I told her, like, I've done this, so if you can explain it better, and it was always me asking right. her Excellent. the Excellent. question. So, so she, 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 so just through that, you asked her for more or less of a, a guided tour of her own epistemology, and I, I do want to say to people listening, I think this is a really good example because. Many people will think, oh, my God, I can't talk about this. I can't ask because they'll be offended or everyone will freak out. Not if you ask questions in the right way. People, you'll find virtually everyone. I think that this is more gendered, but I could be wrong. I think males like to talk about themselves and accomplish them some more, but I, I could be incorrect. I don't have a lot of data for that. Um, but I think if you ask people questions in the right way, Many people will, they're just afraid, they're intrinsically or inherently afraid of having conversations because they feel it's going to lead people to ostracize them or they're maybe they're introverts and they don't know what to do. Or, But I think that those conversations showed that it's possible to have conversations with someone who, again, you didn't ask them to put their belief on a scale, so it's hard to say, but who have undergone some pretty heavy duty indoctrination. Yeah. Uh, okay, and again, I I don't I'm not trying to you know I I, I don't do the, the the like the you know walking up to people in the street and doing that kind of stuff like I you know that's not ever been my thing. But I have you know uh, I'm an ex-Muslim. I have you know had my arguments with with religious Muslims, you know, family included and stuff. So right. maybe that gives me a little bit of a leg up on how to talk to someone who is so firm in their beliefs. Um, I don't right. know. 
Yeah, and in, in, in those in my first book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, I talk about how important it is to bring in those experiences that you have. So if you have unique experiences, like my, my friend Faisal Mutar, he has unique experiences in these folks. And the more you can show people that, look, you know, and that's in the chapter, I think it's chapter five, Building Golden Bridges, or maybe it's four, I don't remember. But the idea is not to say, like the opposite of a golden bridge, is to say something like, it took you long enough, or I can't believe you're so stupid you didn't see that. But rather a golden bridge is giving somebody an opportunity to walk across and revise their beliefs or change their minds. So sometimes it's simple as, as we wrote in the book, sometimes it's just as simple as, yeah, you know, I, I used to think that or I used to believe that until I learned this. And you are ideally situated to speak to that because I've never been religious, to say the least. And I've, I, I don't I don't come from that set of experiences. So you have an advantage in those kinds of conversations. Yeah. Well, okay, just one little off thing. Uh, if you speak to Faisal again, uh, ask him about, uh, him about getting lost in my apartment building. Okay, okay. <laughs> I just texted him the other day. Yeah, he's he's a, a very he's a awesome human being. Love. Oh no, him. he's great. He was uh, like he was here last summer. He was uh, he came to Montreal for. Uh, a heavy metal festival and he stayed at my place oh cool yeah. oh cool i didn't know he liked metal huh. and like i said he got lost in my apartment building which is kind of funny oh cool cool <laughs> yeah and again that that so you so I, I wish it weren't the case but i'm just going to be honest with you and say this bluntly to you so if if you participate in that social justice uppercase s and j worldview if you participate in that so you're constantly looking for oppression variables you're constantly looking for oppression everywhere, grievances everywhere. And someone like me is de facto suspect, cis, hetero, white, male, especially at my, my age at this time. But if you do have, you mentioned brown, I didn't know, know what you look like, but uh, if you do have that and they view that as an oppression variable, then that may give some, uh, may make those conversations easier to a certain extent. As we wrote in the book, someone both said to me and to my colleague at Portland State, uh, if a white male told me two plus two equals four, I wouldn't believe him. So I, I think that that is a, tragically, that is a, a common attitude right now, that you reduce the truth of one's utterances to their immutable characteristics. And if they don't have certain immutable characteristics, their utterances are instantly suspect. Yeah. Okay. On that topic, so the the second uh, girl I was talking about, uh, you know, the, the older one. Um, we were talking about the the U.S. election and the, the primaries were going on, and uh, and you know, we were like again, we were disagreeing on a lot, and I I just said something along the lines like, you know, well, I I, said, like, I wouldn't vote for Trump. I said I I I just couldn't, and like her reaction was like, oh, I I know that. And now we disagreed on a lot of stuff, like pretty much just about everything. So, but yet she assumed. Yeah, so that's, I, yeah, that, that's a modification of a technique in the book. One of the techniques in the book is to point out extremists on your side. Yeah. And Trump is just an extremist, period. I don't really know whose side he's on besides yeah. his own side, but in the side of his family. But so, so that's, you're having a conversation and you want to build rapport. You point out extremists on your side. And what you don't do is you point out extremists on the other side, what you perceive their side to be. Yeah. So there's no reciprocity, there's no transaction, there's no verbal 
uh, transactionalism in there. It's just, yeah, these people, and you can call them out, lunatics, deranged, crazy, whatever they are, Antifa, who goes to violence, um, when violence is the one to go to. You can point out the lunatics on your side, and that's a wonderful way to rapport build with someone. And so by you pointing out what should be evident to any sane, every sane person that Trump is, well, I don't really want to talk about him, but yeah. the point is that po pointing, pointing that out is a, is a great way to build rapport so long as you're sincere and honest in your, um, yeah. when you do so. But okay, what, the one thing that I found funny about it was the way she said, well, obviously you're not going to vote for him. And then right away she said, well, you know, I'm not trying to profile you. It's like, right. yeah, but you are. <laughs> you know? Right. You know, like, you thought I wasn't going to vote for him because of the color of my skin. And it's like, right. and I was right. I, at one point, and I wasn't, again, I I wasn't trying to lecture and I wasn't trying to scold or anything. I said, and I just, because I, I focused on that white way of knowing thing again. Right. And I, and I went through a list of, okay, I said, well, you know, I gave her a quote from Plato that, that where he talks about Egyptians and mathematics. And he compares, he compares Egyptian children to Greek children. He calls the Greek children pigs in comparison to the humans that the Egyptian children are because how advanced they are. And I quotes from the golden age of Islam about free speech that are echoed in mill. And I just went yeah. through these things and I said, I said, these, I said, this is not white way or brown way of knowing i was like these are ways of knowing and i wasn't trying to lecture and i said this is being about i said from you know start to finish so I, it was i guess maybe i was being you know, you know i had a few beers in me so i might have been a bit of an ass and like just saying okay well you're wrong there but i was just trying right, to show like right. okay that whole line of thinking is not correct because of this so. yeah and so that's uh that that's one way to approach the problem it's with counter examples and since you mentioned plato that's the core of much of this stuff it's like a has a core and a root in the whew, i'm smoking cigarettes has a root in the socratic method uh, even though socrates didn't call it the socratic method and the, the moment you start telling people oh that's wrong that invokes a defensive posture which breaks rapport which makes it more difficult for them to revise their beliefs. So you need to be very, very careful about how and when those counterexamples are deployed. That's the other reason, just parenthetically, why scales are so important. Because when you ask someone about their confidence in a belief and they give you a number, it will tell you, like on a one to 10, for example, which questions to, to ask in the sequence. And the book, you know, as you read the book, it, it lays everything out. So yeah. it just gives the templates of they say this, you say this, boom, boom, boom. And once you have maybe, it's hard to say an exact number, but, you know, 20, 25 conversations under your belt. Again, that's a guess. Could be more or less, but probably, probably more. Um, then what you can do is you can leave those templates and play with it and have fun with it and but you just need the fundamentals before you do any of that yeah okay like i honestly when i when i'm going through this and even when i was speaking with those people like i said i wasn't it wasn't like it was forefront in my mind but you know some of these things were in the back of my head uh and also i'd spoken with a friend of mine i you might know him because 
he kind of runs in the same uh, grouping of some people. Like, uh, is Ryan Bennett? No, I don't know him. Okay. Well, he, I know he does some work with Letter. That's why I thought you might know him. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, but anyways, he had come out with this, and it was just more of a, a personal thing with him. He, he called it an IDW protocol, and he based, uh, like Ryan's a software guy, and you know, like I said, I work in IT, I'm a hardware guy, and he was basing yeah. it on, he was saying, okay, the IDW, if it's anything, it should be a protocol on how to have conversations. And so... Um, he, yeah, I mean, so so... I don't. So the IDW, you know, to Eric Weinstein's term, yeah. it, it, what what that means is different to different people. Yeah. And I, although a ton of people have said, "Oh, you're IDW or IDW," I just kind of do my own thing. Well, I don't know. Um, I'm, not, I'm not trying to imply that at all that, that you're part of it. I was just saying, like he he said that what he thought the IDW should be, yeah, is uh, uh, like it it should be a protocol on how to have conversations more than. You know, a group of people that are free thinkers or anything like that. He he didn't like yeah, that, I, that I kind think of that's, Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's good. I like that. Um, in the talk, it was my thin tweet up until recently. I yeah. gave a talk in London and I posted yeah. it and I talked about rules of engagement and what the rules of engagement should be, what they've become, and how do we move forward given that we have different rules of engagement in, in conversational engagement. And And I think that that's you know, people have learned, students in particular, have learned awful, awful, nasty behavior, just vicious behavior about calling everyone a racist and a sexist and a bigot and a homophobe and running to offices of diversity, equity, and inclusion where they don't like something. And, I mean, they're, they've learned such, such brutally bad habits, such grotesque habits, that they, it's like when, when I wrote my first book, when someone's thinking is damaged, they want to damage your thinking. And so much of this, certainly not all of it, but much of this is a combination of um, people, mo it's modeling behavior, and they've had the, the wrong things modeled for them. Speaking of which, I did an event with Brett, uh, Eric's brother, and Christina Hoff Summers, and Heather Hine at Portland State, and a tenured professor started screaming at us from the audience, and not in the Q&A, by the way, when, when we were engaging each other. Um, in the talk and of course i said to her you're free to, you, you can see that the videos online i think come i up have during the q a yeah come up during the q a and you can go first but but the idea is that that's what students are seeing they're seeing their behave their professors behave in this way and we're creating these what jonathan height and greg lukianoff you know have talked about this extensively in the atlantic piece and calling the american mind we're creating environments and context that bring out the, that, that make people fragile, that make people want to be victims, and they have to relearn how to have a civil conversation with someone. And as we write in the book, Lindsay thinks the most important thing in the whole book, and I'm not saying I agree or disagree with it, but he thinks the most important thing from the book is let friends be wrong. So if you, if you, we mentioned Faisal, right? So if Faisal has a particular belief, political belief, moral belief, social beliefs that you don't have to agree with, well, so what? Who gives a shit? You guys can still hang out and listen to the heavy metal show, right? You guys can still have some beers together. You guys can still pal around. So I think let friends be wrong is part of that, but the only way you can do that in the first place 
is if we relearn how to have conversations with people and how to question, how to listen, how to question our own assumptions. And quite frankly, not, not just to, it, it's, it's really, you know, every time you don't do that, you're robbing yourself of an opportunity. So there are selfish reasons as well. Yeah. Um, but like when I was speaking to Ryan, I, I brought something up, like in something you just said there, uh, yeah. like, you know, like let friends be wrong, but like try to figure out, you know, like where you're coming from and all that. I don't think, I don't think enough people know what their first principles are in themselves or where they are actually coming right. from. Like, I, like someone, like okay, they'll go listen to Sam Harris speak and they'll quote a couple of things he says, or they'll listen to you know, Ben Shapiro or, um, and anybody, you know, anybody, anybody. You're, you're, yourself, yeah. you know, yourself, whatever. And they'll just quote those little things or someone will read like, uh, they'll hear someone talking about Karl Popper. So they'll read Popper. Right. And I'm like, okay, but did you read Marx? Did you read any Plato? Did you read Socrates? Did you read any right. of the other people that Popper talked about? You know, right. and it's, so I, I think there's a lot of, I don't know if that's part of the problem with the education or whatever, but there, there's not enough self-reflection to not understand what you yourself truly stand for. Like, are you actually, like, have you learned to evaluate what your beliefs are? Are they just your beliefs? Be they religious or you know, whatever, political, or whether you like pineapple on right. pizza, right? It's like, where right. did you come from? It, it, well, the, so first, you're absolutely correct. Second, kids, and I say kids broadly because I'm 53 now, but kids should be learning that in schools. They should be learning that in college. Uh, I wrote a piece years ago about uh, the, uh, I can't remember the exact title, but something like the purpose of the educator is to help students align their beliefs with facts. People lost their fucking minds at that. Um, so, so we're not, it really is true that we have created cultures in which, and part of this problem is everybody thinks they're entitled to their own facts. And there have been a lot of people spoken very eloquently about why that's not true. Um, but we need to create cultures in which it's different from saying I have an opinion about something to saying that I will revise my belief to bring it in alignment with the evidence. And that, that's one of the greatest gifts I think you can give somebody, right? And in these conversations, in the Gorgias, Plato says it's better to be refuted than it is to refute. So you, you have a possibility in each conversation to revise your own belief. I mean, who, who wants to be wrong? I, I, I just I, I just cannot believe that anybody wants to, to live in error and they want to have false beliefs. That's why that other piece we mentioned, building golden bridges is so important. And that's giving people an opportunity to cross over and revise their beliefs. And so the question is, you know, how do we do that in, in this time of social media? with a fractured political and social and now even economic landscape. So if you think things were hard before, wait until, you know, without depressing people, wait until we see, I mean, already we see the effects of, we barely see the effects of the stock market, layoffs, etc. Those conversations are much harder, much, much, much more difficult to have.
because everybody's so tense. They they now have extra stressors. We just brought the groceries in the house. Took us thirty five minutes to wash everything off with bleach. Uh, right. I mean, so so you're adding all of that stuff onto something that was already complicated. Yeah, and uh, hey, can I can I mention one thing else that's on my mind too? Sure, please. So I've been thinking about this a lot. So. I think Habermas, the philosopher Jürgen Habermas, talks about this. I, I think we're having a, uh, I don't know where in this, I don't know if it's the beginning or the middle, but it's certainly not the end. I think we're having a legitimation crisis. And we're questioning the legitimacy of our institutions. And now we've questioned the legitimacy of of not only the judiciary and the presidency and the Senate and the Congress, et cetera, the legislative branch, but the academic institutions. And if you add that on top of everything else, where we think everything is fake news and nothing can be trusted, et cetera, et cetera, you, you, you have a, you know, uh, used to play games, what, you know, what's it called? Um, the mode that if you die, you don't come back hardcore. Is that what it is? Yeah, okay, something like that, yeah. Yeah, so so you're now playing in that kind of mode. So you've gone from already impossible conversations to hard mode to now everybody being stressed out. Now think about how difficult that is. And I would argue that that's more reason to adopt the techniques in the book and empower yourself to have those and maintain healthy relationships than not. Oh, no, totally. And Okay, just touching on something that you brought up there because I think again, this is why like having these conversations is going to be important is I was just speaking to, uh, Bo Weingard, um, yeah. and uh, you know, about what happened to him at Marietta and, you know, yeah. I, I brought this up. It's like, okay, if you take a look at him, uh, Brett Weinstein, Heather Hying, uh, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of, you know, the, the, a lot of people, Yeah, a lot of people just, so- just Toby that. Young just started something for that. And, yeah, and, and foundation. Um, yeah, go ahead. But the academy has start has started. Uh, it's the academy is attacking expertise themselves. And yes, that's yes. And then then you have that's Tom Nichols' book too. And then now you have okay. Well, not just now, but I don't like the term fake news. I it's, I, I call it narrative driven news. And yes. if you look at um, Okay, the New York Times late last year or middle of last year in Brooklyn when there was four black girls that were beat up by two South Asian males and one of the South Asian yes. males pissed on them. The the, the lead page and the editorial section of the uh, New York Times was, this is due to whiteness. Now, right. when they do shit like that, they have they're losing credibility and they're, you know, fake news, all that crap. And because that, that is right. an awful take there. At a right. time like this, because of okay, because of the divide, uh, uh, what's his name um, on Fox? Uh, Jesus Christ, the guy used to be with a bow tie. Why can't I remember his name? Um, Tucker Carlson, right? Yeah. He he did a phenomenal job covering this stuff. He was one of the few right. people on Fox who was taking this seriously and was doing a good job. But oh well, if you know that's Fox News, they're they're garbage. I don't want right. to listen to them. Or the other side, if there's people in the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN. We're doing good work. I don't know. That's fake news. It's we don't want to listen to them. So, yeah. 
like art like the media itself and the academy are making people lose trust and expertise and this is the right. worst time for that to happen it is and we tried to do something about that with the grievance studies affair but uh not only people hunker down i think part of that part, i was perhaps pollyanna mm -hmm. but part of that was that we got discovered prematurely mm -hmm. but but you're right i think i had these people from fox interview me and they were not at all what i was expecting from a fox crew at all and i said after i got to know these guys i'm like hey man i did not expect you guys that, that i truly didn't and i said like yeah everybody tells us that and the shame is that people just write us off because we work for fox and we do really good journalism and i haven't seen the piece yet i don't even know if it's out but um, because of recent events but i think that there is that and you know i when I was when I was on Tucker Carlson, I was expecting massive blowback from them, massive blowback, and there was hardly a peep. So I think that that media landscape has changed, and I think that I think that it's you're right about narratives, right? We're, we're narrative creatures, and, and we not only do we tell stories to ourselves, but stories are the way that we navigate reality, right? So we need bad guys, we need this, we need and. I think understanding that, that that is a crucial crucial dimension. So it's not like people knowingly do bad things, which Plato says in the Theaetetus. It's that they act on the information they have. My mentor said to me once, if I was sitting in, down in his house, he said, if I had your genes and your life experience, I'd be sitting right there, dressed as you're dressed, tapping your finger like you're tapping it. And the idea is when you take the ghost out of the machine, it's just the machine. And it's kind of like you can look at the brain as a, as a CPU that processes information that comes in. And so the, all of these things operate together collaboratively to help us understand and really be more compassionate when we're having a conversation with someone who just seems like a dick, right? Or, or they just seem like they're mean-spirited. And maybe they are. But more often than not, if you can extend in philosophy, and particularly call it hermeneutic of charity, a charitable interpretation for why someone believes and acts like they do, those conversations will go much, they, they will almost transform. Yeah, I mean, I think especially now you got to be really charitable to people because, um, you know, the stress is building up, everything's building up, and... Jesus, no kidding. And, you know, I, I, I was in the gun store the other day, and, and I was... A very American thing to say, but 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 I uh, I didn't even know that my arm evidently bumped somebody, and they just started yelling at me like, you know what? She just started freaking out, and you know that had much more to do with the context and her than it did to do with me. You know, I mean, it certainly wasn't like I felt her, and we were like, well, screw her, I'm just going to bump her anyway. Uh, yeah. So I think we need to be particularly charitable in these times when people are insanely stressed out insanely stressed out yeah so again it, it might have in fact not only might it probably not always of course probably has more to do with them than with you yeah and it's i mean everyone's gonna be wound up really tight um i i it's and i it's i i, I analogize it to the, the you know the, you put the frog in the hot water and like you know exactly it doesn't because and i would notice it when i when i was working overseas you know as soon as I left the base to go on leave, 
And when I got out of Afghanistan and landed in Dubai, like, you just, this just weight fell off your shoulders. Like, because you didn't realize how much stress you were under. Exactly. Until you're gone. And, like, I don't think people themselves realize, you know, for them to get to that point right now, they're already ratcheted up to, you know, eight or nine to get to that point. They're, you know, like, it, 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 take, it takes so much less now than it would before. Yeah. Uh, Strange times, man. Strange oh, times. Um, there's one thing I wanted to uh, talk to you about, and it's kind of, it's sticking with this, but it was, um, yeah. thinking about, like, thinking about how you think, like, I, I, now I've used the, the, the term, you know, free speech is the foundation of all our other liberties, you know, it's the bedrock of, yes. all, of all our other, yep. and yep. in the last couple of years, I've just been playing with an idea because I said yeah. to myself that that's wrong. And not okay. wrong in the sense that I don't think you need free speech. I'm like about as absolute as you can get. I think yeah. the First Amendment is the best law that's <laughs> out there based on free speech. And I mean, you know, like yeah. Milton and Mill, I, I just adore what their their writings on it. But now I was thinking, and then it, it was also like when I read Deutsch's book, uh, the, the Beginning of Infinity, when he talked about dynamic and static ways of thinking. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now. Um, now, for me, like, if you have a foundational, like, foundational thinking that's dogmatic, that's your church, that's, you know, whatever, the grievance studies, that's, you know, critical theories, all, all those things, right? You right. build your structure on top of that foundation, you forget about your foundation, you think the structure is is everything until the foundation cracks, right. and then you have to notice it. Right. So, right. like, thinking, okay, if your first principles are are dynamic, not static, then instead of thinking of it foundationally, think of your first principles as the earth of a garden. Because if it's a garden, you always have to look after that earth. You can't just let it go. You can't just plant your stuff and walk away. You have to right. take care of it. And if you want to try something out, you can try something out in a little section of it and not damage everything else. But if you find out, okay, well, you know what? This is more of a weed than anything else. You pull it out. And so if you think of like the first principles like you know free speech freedom of the individual you know basic enlightened values you think of those as the earth of a garden instead of a foundation and i was like playing with the idea of changing how you think about your thinking and then from there you might have a better idea of like what kind of society or what kind of thought pattern you want or you know like how you go from there yeah i there's a lot there. <laughs> you said a lot. Um, I, I, I'm, there are many ways to respond to that. You know, one way could be steel man, the argument against free thinking, which I'd be happy to do. Talk about why, you know, it's the first thing. Secondly, talk about why it's the bedrock principle and what that, that means. Um, three, imagine, and this is when you can bring your, I don't know if expertise is the right word, but you're certainly your experience as an ex-Muslim. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Canada. I mean, my family was born in India, oh, okay. but I, I've been living in Canada since I was six. Oh, okay. Um, so, so talking about that in a, in a perhaps if you if you're familiar with that context, and it, I, I think you know I've been I've been doing this for a long time, and I think the key to understanding that, if if I understood you correctly. 
and that's when I could we could do Rappaport's first rule, but I have to ask you more questions. I, I think the key is that embedded within that, it has to have the possibility of belief revision. Without free speech, there is no possibility of belief. How would you revise your beliefs? Maybe on something hyper-technical or trivial, but certainly not on a moral issue. If we didn't have free speech, for example, and the government issued, <coughs> and you know, you lived when I grew up, uh, we'd still have the same views about homosexuality, right? So free speech is imperative because it allows people an opportunity to civilly engage with each other. It's the bedrock of democracy. So how do we, how do we think more meaningfully about that in an age when that's increasingly difficult to do? Because, it's not, it's not, because not only is that not valued, but it, it's, it's, there's an overt hostility toward it. Yeah, I mean, like that—that that scares me more than anything else. But also, what what bothers me now about a lot of the people who are defending free speech, I think they're defending the wrong thing. And I mean, I, and it's like they're defending the right of the speaker, which yes, it's very important. But I think the the right of the audience is That's the greater right. right in the free speech argument. And I, a lot of people who are defending free speech, I don't see them making that argument. Like Hitchens used to yeah, do I, a lot. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think I think that's right. I've only heard it in terms of the rights of the audience, but maybe I haven't cast my umbrella wide enough to listen to other folks. But I think that's absolutely right. And I think that there are core or bedrock values. And, the, you know, the people always ask me about, excuse me, critical thinking or what have you, how do you do this? this well, a lot of it is, both an attitudinal disposition and helping people value the right things. But you can't help them value the right things by delivering a message. You have to help them value the right things by asking them targeted questions about their own epistemology to see if the methods that they use, they can, be, they can rely upon those methods to lead them to truth. Now, once you do that, you have a different, then the whole, the, the it's just a different way to think about communicating, particularly about communicating across moral divides. And the free speech issue has become a moral divide. Yeah. I mean, I, I never, like I said, I was, I left in 2002. I came back in 2014. And I mean, in that whatever, 12 and a half years or so that I was gone, I mean, it, it went from, you know, I may disagree with you, but I'll, you know, I'll have your right, <laughs> right to say it, to I disagree with you and you have to be fired or you have to be canceled. And it just, like, it, that was the the biggest culture shock to me coming back was like, what the hell happened? Oh. I know. Yeah. I know. And, and I, it's going to be interesting to see how being slapped in the face with, all right, cool. Well, you got anything else on your mind before we wrap it up? No, I was going to say, well, thank you very much. If you want to let people know where they can get, get a hold of you and uh, yeah, thanks a lot. Sure. It was great. At, yeah, man, anytime. I'm my, my pleasure at Peter Bogosian at P E T E R B O G H O S S I N. And the book we've been talking about is how to have impossible conversations. And I hope that folks can use the, 36 techniques in the book, each broken down to help help you in lockdown. And I've been putting a lot, a lot of videos, and these, this chat helps. So ho hopefully these chats can help people stay sane in a 
in a really, really hard time. So thanks for having me on, Omar. Appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, and thanks, everyone, for listening.